here there's two things going on, just to clarify. There is, okay, what is the original meaning of the Constitution and what work was that supposed to do? And then there's a second conversation related, but really separate. What is the true principle or what is the natural right of religious liberty to man? One is a historical and constitutional question, the other is a more philosophical question. And, and the book tries to address both those. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny Burtko. Today we are recording with Vincent Philip Munoz, who is the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Political Science and concurrent Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame. He is the founding director of Notre Dame's Center for Citizenship and Constitutional Government. He writes and teaches across the fields of constitutional law, American politics, and political philosophy, with a focus on religious liberty in the American founding. He joins us today on the heels of his newest book, Religious Liberty in the American Founding, Natural Rights, and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religion Clause, published by the University of Chicago Press. Welcome, Dr. Munoz. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Great to have you. And before we get to our interview, we'd like to thank you all for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in pursuing that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcast to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So, Vincent, uh, your new book is about the idea of religious liberty and how it was viewed and understood at the time of the American founding. And there have been a number of books and articles written about it uh, lately, especially since it's such a lively issue in the Supreme Court, with many cases uh, recently decided, like Fulton versus Philadelphia, Carson versus Macon, Kennedy versus Bremington School District, just to name a few. And so I'm wondering if you could comment on what's missing from the contemporary debates about religious liberty and the courts and what you hope your book will do to address that shortcoming. Yeah, good. Well, again, thanks for having me. It's a good question, a very good question to start our conversation. You're right, excuse me, you're right in saying that this is a well-covered subject, in part because religion and public life is such an important subject. Scholars have been writing on this for years. So I, it was not easy, actually, to pitch the press on. I mean, the first question every press has is, well, what, what do you have to say that someone else hasn't said already? And that's a fair question. It's basically your question. What the book tries to do, which I don't think has been done before, is give a natural rights account, religious liberty. It does that philosophically. I try to explain the founders' philosophy of natural rights. It does it constitutionally in two ways. The first way is just try to explain the original meaning of the Constitution. Lots of other scholars have done that. I have my own take on the original meaning. But then secondly, I try to present a natural rights construction of the First Amendment religion clauses. Uh, in short, if we took the founders' natural rights philosophy of religious liberty and applied that through the uh, free exercise clause and establishment clause of the First Amendment, what would we get? And that's what I do, and I don't think that has been done before. That makes a lot of sense, and I'm wondering, sort of building on that, if you could start off with a concrete definition of what religious liberty is and what it's not, and maybe also touch on whether or not there was a, a notable difference between the way that the British understood religious freedom and the way that the founders understood religious freedom in our new republic. Well, yeah, well, those are two huge questions. And you know, to explain, uh, to summarize the British view and the American view assumes that there's a unitary British view and a unitary American view. So 
let me leave the British view aside because uh, that that is a bit beyond my expertise and is very complicated. So just even the American view. I mean, part of my argument, in fact, the, I think it's the fourth chapter is titled uh, How the Founders Disagreed. And my line here is that the founders agreed in principle. That is, they agreed that all individuals, not just all citizens, but all individuals had a natural right to religious liberty. In fact, they called it an, an inalienable right to religious liberty. But that's so they agreed in principle. But there's still some disagreement what that principle meant for practice. And I categorize two general groups of founders. I call them expansive liberals and narrow Republicans. Uh, I don't really like those titles, but I couldn't think of anything better. Expansive liberals had an expansive view of the right to religious liberty. That is, they thought it, it limited government more. And we can talk about what that more is. Narrow Republicans had a narrower view of religious liberty. And they're Republican insofar as they turn uh, many questions about church and state over to the Republic. That is over to Republican uh, or what we'd say called Democratic majorities. George Washington, Patrick Henry are examples of what I call narrow Republicans. James Madison is probably the leading example of an expansive liberal. All these individuals believed in the idea of a natural right to religious liberty. But when it came down to practice and how we implement those natural rights principles, there was some disagreement. Zooming in on that that disagreement, you know, I'm, I'm curious how when, when we think of originalism generally, how does the originalist philosophy square, you know, disagreements and what the original meaning might be if there were, you know, schools of thought that had different perspectives? I mean, how would how, how does that sort of tension play out when it comes to originalist jurisprudence? Well, in a way, the way it plays out is uh, everyone claims to be an originalist, and then they pick and choose the uh, founding father they like best, and they use that founding father to say, this is the original meaning of the Constitution. This is one of the reasons why both uh, conservative scholar or conservative jurists and liberal jurists, in, especially in establishment clause matters, uh, everyone's an originalist. That is, everyone claims to be channeling the founding fathers for their interpretations. In part, that's true just because the founding fathers disagreed. So you can be an originalist and almost reach every conclusion you want or any conclusion you want. Um, I'm not sure that's really originalism, faithfully applied. The founders' disagreements complicate originalism. Maybe I can put it that way. That's not the only reason uh, originalism in religious liberty matters is complicated, but it is one reason. And uh, looking at the First Amendment, there are two clauses that get lumped together under religious liberty. One is the establishment and the other is the free exercise clause. Can you comment on why there are two separate clauses and uh, why the framers thought it was important to include both? Yeah, well, that's good. These are great questions. I mean, they're in a way basic questions, but they're questions people forget to ask. So they're, they're really quite good. You asked me something that I take well over 100 pages to address in the book. So let me, let me think about how I can summarize it relatively quickly. Maybe I can try this way. Uh, we can ask, what are the mischiefs? What are the problems that the founders were trying to solve in drafting the religion clauses? Maybe that's a way to go about it. I think the context, and I spend a lot of time on this in the book, the context of the Bill of Rights as a whole is that the Anti-Federalists, those who were against ratification of the Constitution, they were trying to defeat ratification. The Federalists, the, those in favor of ratification of the Constitution, were making arguments in favor of the Constitution. 
The anti-federalists, their leading argument was uh, the Constitution as proposed, as drafted by the Philadelphia Convention, lacks a Bill of Rights. And therefore, really important things like religious liberty will be endangered by this new Constitution. Some of the anti-federalists said uh, there's not even a prohibition against an establishment of religion. Or what they really were saying is these, the new national government might interfere with our state establishments and our state church-state arrangements. So there's a real uh, concrete political history that leads to the drafting of the Bill of Rights in particular, uh, as a whole and the First Amendment in particular. My argument is that both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause were meant to remedy specific uh, problems with ratification. In response to the Anti-Federalist claim that a uh, new constitution would violate religious liberty, the, uh, the Federalists proposed the Free Exercise Clause. Uh, no, the new constitution will not prohibit the free exercise of religion. And in response to the idea that uh, the national government might interfere with state, church-state arrangements, they proposed the Establishment Clause. Uh, that's why we get the peculiar language Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment. That clause, the Establishment Clause, was meant to do two things. It was meant to remedy two problems. And the first problem was the idea that the national government might make an establishment. So the national government can't make an establishment. That's the first you know, mischief that the Establishment Clause remedies. The second is it won't interfere with state-level establishments or federalism. And that's the second mischief. So the Free Exercise Clause was meant to adopt a principle of religious liberty. The Establishment Clause was meant to adopt two concrete rules, no national establishment and no interference with church-state matters on the state level. Okay. I think talking about the Establishment Clause kind of gives us an opportunity maybe to look at two potential criticisms to your argument, one in the American context, one in the more historical context. Uh, in the American context, you had you write about you know religious liberty being an inalienable natural right, and say you know the government basically doesn't have the the even the ability. A free people can't transfer the ability to the government to sort of regulate religious affairs, uh, prohibiting certain types of worship or encouraging others. I'm curious with the establishment clause in particular, which acknowledges the legitimacy of state based establishments would would state based you know would the episcopal church in the state of virginia at the time for example violate the natural right of religious liberty yeah i think it would and the citizens of virginia thought it would as well so again there's two problems one is the more general principle of religious liberty and then second there's the federalism or non-interference right national government shouldn't interfere with what's going on in the states when you go to the state level, you have some real disagreements. In Virginia, led by Madison and Jefferson, they argued religious establishments, however they might be construed, violate the principle of religious liberty. In other states, what could and could not be done, that is, what, to what extent government could aid religion or not, was disputed. So in some states, Massachusetts, for example, a government funding of religion was not thought to violate the free exercise of religion. Now, Madison would have disagreed with that. This is what I mean. There's some disagreement. Part of the solution the First Amendment offered was to keep this disagreement on the state level. So here, there's two things going on, just to clarify. There is, okay, what is the original meaning of the Constitution and what work was that supposed to do? And then there's a second conversation related, but really separate. 
what is the true principle or what is the natural right of religious liberty demand? Mm-hmm. One is a historical and constitutional question. The other is a more philosophical question. And, and the book tries to address both those questions. Okay. And, and kind of zooming back at sort of as a, you know, at ISI, we introduce students not only to the American tradition, but also the Western tradition that preceded it. I'm curious how you make sense of examples throughout history, like sort of Moses or King David, right? Intimately, the regimes were intimately involved in the regulation of right worship and and improper worship and and sort of the, but both Moses sort of when he comes down the mountain, you know, with the 10 commandments, sees the people worshiping an idol, you know, he gets angry, you know, and, and is prohibiting such behavior. So how do you make sense of that when it seems like you know, more or less those things were, were sanctioned by the, the government's rec- regulation of religion was sanctioned by God himself, sort of in the Old Testament. And then if you think of the Byzantine Empire and, you know, the church councils that many of the emperors called and presided over and in the church, you know, affirmed the, you know, the validity of those councils, I guess, how do we, it, it seems like there's throughout history, there's a case for some government role in regulating religious life. Do you see that as a tension with your understanding of the natural right to religious freedom or not? Yeah, very good. Another great question. I mean, I think let's just stick with your first example of Moses. I mean, uh, Moses is a lawgiver, right? I I say this somewhat tongue in cheek to my students, but Moses is the George Washington of the Jewish people, right? He's a lawgiver. Mm -hmm. Well, he's also a religious leader. Where does Moses get the law? Well, from God. God is the direct authority, you know, he is the author and authority of the law. So the Jewish people don't exactly, rat, you know, they're not ten proposals, you know, they're ten commandments. It, their authority is divine. Well, American law does, doesn't come directly from God. And the, the deeper issue here is Christianity doesn't provide a political law. Right? Moses provides a law. Muhammad provides a law. Or, you know, there, there is Islamic law. There's Sharia law. There's no similar equivalent in Christianity. What is the political law of the New Testament? Yeah, I understand that. But wouldn't there be? Let's. So I, I, I guess I get that in, as relates to Israel. How about how about sort of Byzantine Empire? You know, Roman law or well, well so what Christianity does is it raises. I mean, look. Christ says, uh, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. Well, what does that imply? It means Caesar is legitimate, right? Political authority is legitimate. You're supposed to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But what is Caesar's is not necessarily God's. Of course, yeah. Human authority or human political authority and divine authority are distinct. That's not true in the ancient world, right? That's not true in, uh, uh, for Moses. Or in the Greek polis, right? Christianity uh, kills the Greek polis. Uh, and so we have to have a new foundation for the authority of law. And that becomes the natural law tradition. And natural rights, in the founders' understanding of natural rights, are part of the natural law tradition. Right? Hamilton says, and the, the farmer refuted that, natural rights are part of the natural law. The author of the natural law ultimately is the creator. Okay. So when the founders talking about inalienable natural rights, they're saying there's a certain element of our freedom 
religious liberty in this instance, that does not belong to the state. Mm -hmm. It's no business of the state to legislate how we ought to worship. That's not to deny that there is a proper way to worship or not, but it's to deny that we give that authority to dictate our worship. That meaning governing officials cannot tell you when to go to church or how to go to church or how, you know, who can be a minister and who cannot be a minister. Those things, those essential elements of what I call religious worship are outside of the jurisdiction of the state. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean that everything pertaining to religion is outside the jurisdiction of the state. But these, because we don't give them to the state, why don't we give them to the state? Well, because we have higher obligations to the creator. The horizon in which this argument can take place is only when, only can come about when there's been a separation of divine authority and political authority. Christianity is instrumental to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's certainly instrumental in that it, as far as it breaks with sort of the Greek and, and Roman examples that preceded it. And I, I definitely understand how your arguments would apply in, in the American context but I still have a hard time with, you know, while acknowledging the distinct spheres of church and state and the, the you know, both institutions ordained by God sort of with, with particular vocations, I guess I, I have a harder time understanding uh, in light of sort of like the first thousand years of, of church history where there was that symphony between the two, you know, or even, for example, Eastern Christian liturgies, liturgy of Basil, you know, St. Basil the Great, St. John Chrysostom. I mean, the, the movements of the liturgy that are even celebrated today, you know, have the the entrance of the emperor, for example, into the, the church or the fact that the emperor even communed behind the screen with the, the clergy. It, it, it very much was an, the imperial sort of form of, of worship. And so... Is there a way in which any of that or a way in which just the general, the participate, participation of an emperor at a church council, can, can that be squared with natural right philosophy with maybe the narrow Republican view, you know, or is it it's not Republican, but it's, you know, this is an empire I'm re- referencing, but I'm just trying to understand, is there a way to say that, yeah, it, it's squared with the natural rights of li- religious liberty to have that role for the emperor in the religious liturgical life, you know, ecclesial, ecclesiastical life of a people? Or would you say that, that it was essentially wrong for those things to happen in light of natural law? Well, it, it depends what you mean by participate. Uh, do you mean, can Joe Biden go to church? But he, uh, you know, Joe Biden says he's Catholic. so. If he goes to Matthew's Cathedral in Washington, D.C., can Joe Biden go to church? Certainly. Could he process up the aisle, you know, before the priest? I suppose so. I mean, he could be an altar boy or, you know. Does Joe Biden get to appoint the Archbishop of Washington? Of course not. No. Why? You tell me. Why not? Because that, that is the older understanding of the union of church and state, right? This is what we mean by jurisdiction, right? Yeah, Joe Biden can you know, walk up the aisle. There's no problem with that. He's a citizen. He has his natural rights, too. He can uh, exercise his religion freely. Um, not sure that he always exercises it in con- consistently with his own church, but you know, that's a matter between him and his, his spiritual advisor, right? But the real issue 
comes to authority, what authority does do spiritual authorities have in politics? And what authority do political authorities have over the church? And the quintessential question is, who appoints bishops? Is a church authority or is a political authority? And the law you're pressing is political authorities appoint the bishops. And the founders say that's not right. Sure. I, 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 but I think there's probably, I guess what I would be making is a distinction between Caesaropapism and, and sort of the state dictating, okay, we get to appoint these bishops versus historically, I'm, I'm not arguing that this is what, what we need in America today. I don't think Joe Biden, for example, should be, you know, inviting the, you know, a council of, you know, Catholic bishops of the United States to, to, you know, I don't know, hold a symposium on immigration sort of at, at the White House and de- determine what the church's policy should be. What, what I guess what I'm getting at is just as a, as a matter of history, whether you, let, setting aside, you know, a, agreeing that the, the church appointing bishops would violate both natural law and I think. You can't just set that aside. You have to say, why can't they, right? I mean, yeah, sir. All sorts of things happen in history. All sorts of things happen in history that were incompatible with a natural rights understanding, right? The founders said they were creating a new order for the ages. They thought they were doing something new. So, uh, no, the natural rights approach doesn't square with all sorts of old historical practices. And so, I guess by say when I say setting aside the state appointing bishops, I, I mean to focus on let, let's just you know for, acknowledge that that would be wrong, right, on a natural right basis and just on a general sort of Christian basis. What about the the sort of the the um, the emperor calling a council, facilitating a council? presiding at a council, like happened in history? What about the the actual liturgical patterns of the church being built around the, this sort of uh, the emperor himself? I mean, those are things that the, the church has, a, has approved of. And so I just don't see if the church approves of it, how, how it could, could it violate natural law? Okay, but let's put this into real life. What you're calling it. So the governor of California should call a council, he's Catholic, says he's Catholic, to call a council of the bishops, could it be the bishops of California, to talk about church policy, church doctrine? What exactly is Governor Newsom going to do that following historical example that you think he should do? So I, I am not suggesting that, that Newsom or Biden should follow this historic precedent. What I am saying is that it seems as though the church itself as a divine institution was not only not only went along with this arrangement for the first thousand years, but was actually okay with or endorsed not the, the state controlling the church, but sort of a mutual, mutually supporting relationship where the, the church and the state were part of, you know, a single organism, which was sort of the, the empire. So I'm just, I'm just trying to square those two historically. Maybe that they can't be squared. I mean, you, I mean, you'd have to do a lot more thoughtful analysis on what these two spheres are, what their proper jurisdictions are, what was historical practice versus dogmatic teaching. Um, those are, those are complicated questions. And then you have different Christian traditions. Let me just speak about Catholicism. You know, I mean, you can look at Thomas Aquinas who 
suggests some sort of divine monarchy might be best. Now, but are those prudential considerations he's writing? Is that a principal teaching? Is that a matter of church dogma? These questions are far more complicated and far more rich, I think, than you can't just point back, well, look, at this is what they did in the 13th century or the 8th century, and therefore it must be compatible with natural rights. Simply put, I mean, the book is about a natural rights understanding, not a uh, Catholic understanding or a Byzantine understanding, which would be different. Uh, and then once you have those understandings, to even say, what is the Catholic understanding of the relationship between church and state? I mean, that is enormously complicated, right? But if you had a good grasp of that, then you'd want to compare it to the natural rights approach. I think that's right. Here, I think it'd be very fruitful to compare a dignitas humanae with some of the arguments the founders make, dignitas humanae being the Vatican II document on religious freedom. Uh, I actually think you'll see a lot of similarities between dignitas humanae and uh, James Madison's arguments. But, you know, that would take a while to bring out. But you might press the case, I'm not sure if you're saying this, that some of these historical practices wouldn't be compatible with dignitas humanae. Uh, you know, that's, that's, not my, that's not my realm. So I'll, I'll leave that to the church historians and theologians. Sure. Now, that, that makes sense. And I, th- I mean, for, I, I am just to be clear, from a prudential perspective, I, I totally, you know, affirm sort of the, the immense value of religious liberty both throughout the American tradition and today. I think the, yeah, the tension that I'm sort of pressing is where prudence and precedent kind of come up against natural right come up against, you know, some of these particular his- historical examples, which probably would take more time to parse out all these things than we have today. So maybe shifting back a little bit. Go ahead. Let, me, let me tell you why I bring Joe Biden and Governor Newsom in. You got to really think through what this means. What does state authority over the common good, including religious, the religious good, mean? Right? I mean, it's one thing to say in the abstract, what authority are you going to be giving to these governors and presidents? I mean, what does that mean here and now? And that's how you think through these teachings. It could be that the founders have, a, have discovered ways in the natural rights tradition to actually preserve uh, not only political liberty, but what's good for the church. Right? Again, let me, I'm Catholic, so let me just stick to uh, my own faith. I don't want to speak about anyone else's. Has the history of Catholic political governance been exemplary? Ought Pope Francis be making social policy for America? That's not so obviously a good. What should the American immigration policy be, according to Pope Francis? And why should Pope Francis have authority to make those uh, decisions as opposed to the American people? So I think, you know, my integralist friends haven't thought through some of these issues clearly enough. Yeah, well, no, just, yeah, no, th- those are, I think it's, it's worth exploring all those things. I, I guess maybe maybe one more question along this angle as relates more specifically to America. Uh, George Washington's Thanksgiving Day proclamation, for example, says, it is the duty of all nations to obey God's will. And he frames it as nations and not the duty of all individuals. So not using this to press a Catholic integralist point, I'm not Catholic myself, I'm Orthodox, but what did Washington understand by the duty of all nations to obey God's will? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, uh, you'd say, is to limit its rightful authority, right? If individuals do have a natural right, in fact, an obligation to worship according to conscience, the first way political authorities obey God's will the way God who has ordained things is to not interfere 
with with individuals ability to worship according to conscience right so staying uh, political authority staying in their place that's you could say his his very first lesson so you know not criminalizing certain forms of worship that's not the business of the government. I mean, we can go on, but that would be. But, but but think there's all sorts of there's all sorts of things that it are in the business of the government. Let's George Washington is president, so foreign policy, right? As a nation, uh, we act as a nation in foreign policy. Well, as a nation, we ought to respect the precepts of the natural law, right? We're in a state of nature with North Korea right now, right? There's no common authority between America and North Korea. It doesn't mean we can do anything we want to North Korea. We ought to have a moral foreign policy towards them, right? If they have not, uh, we ought to have a more moral foreign policy against towards all the, our fellow nations, right? We can't just take Canada because we want it. We can't just bomb North Korea because we think they're bad, right? If they have not provoked aggression against us, we owe them respect to not uh, interfere with them. Right? So these are all precepts of the natural law. Natural law is part of the divine law. These are precepts the nation must follow if it is to be a good and moral nation. Shifting gears a bit to uh, the issue of precedent, which has been you know, at the forefront of debates about the Supreme Court, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, overturned a precedent. Uh, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how conservatives and originalists should understand the notion of pre- precedent and be thinking about it in relation to natural right. Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, this goes a little bit beyond the scope of my book. What I try to do in the book is just say, this is what a natural rights approach would lead to. And in the very last chapter, I talk about, I think I label it advantages and disadvantages or strengths and weaknesses of the natural rights approach. Uh, One of the complications, I'm not sure if it's a strength or a weakness, is that the natural rights approach for the Establishment Clause doesn't easily sit with precedent. Uh, now, whether that's a good or bad thing depends on your understanding of how strong precedent should be. I don't take up that question in my book. Um, my view is that it's the Constitution that governs, not court precedents. And if the court, pre- if court precedents are not compliant or not square with the Constitution, then it's the Constitution that ought to govern and those court precedents ought to uh, be overturned or minimized. You know, that's a prudential call to some degree. In general, you want to respect precedent, but a bad precedent is really not a binding precedent if you're a constitutionalist. So, uh, you know, I, I, it all depends on whether the precedents are good or not. And whether the precedents are good or not depends on if they adhere reasonably to the original meaning of the Constitution. Expanding on that, could you touch on some of the, the precedents within the religious liberty fear of the court over the last? 50 years and how those impact things today? Sure. Well, let me turn to the free exercise clause since we have not turned to uh, talk about that much. And that's probably one of the more controversial arguments I make. I mean, the, the leading precedent, you could say, uh, is a case called Oregon v. Smith. That was written by Justice Scalia. And I'm simplifying somewhat, but Scalia says the First Amendment does not provide a constitutional right to exemptions from burdens and laws. Uh, Justice Alito among others, have said, well, that's a bad precedent and should be overturned. The Alito made that uh, argument in the city of Philadelphia versus Fulton, a case that decided just over a year ago, 2021. Alito was joined by Justice Gorsuch from Justice Thomas. So, you know, these are three leading originalists. Now, what's interesting, you have Alito, Gorsuch, 
and Thomas on one side and Justice Scalia on the other. Justice Scalia, you know, among most originalists, thought it to be the leading originalist. I think um, it's not exactly that uh, Scalia is right about everything he says in Smith, but the original meaning, or that can be even more precise, the natural rights understanding of religious liberty would not uh, admit a constitutional right to exemptions uh, from religious importance and laws. Uh, the natural rights approach is a much narrower approach. Uh, this is true for the free exercise and for establishment clause matters. It actually turns more things over to democratic governance, um, which you might like, than we think. Uh, it turns out there are a few things that the state can't do. It can't appoint ministers. The state can't prohibit worship. It can't make you worship. But there's all sorts of things that, at least according to the natural rights tradition, governing authorities can do. Um, and they can also, if they can pass laws uh, that don't target religion, that burden religion. They might be bad laws, but at least according to the natural rights approach, they're not unconstitutional laws. Um, I'm curious what you make of, uh, you know, some of the, the I guess, most recent sort of religious liberty victories uh, that have happened at the court. And uh, also, if you could touch on in your book, you mentioned that your sort of natural rights approach might might frustrate both liberals and conservatives when it comes to religious freedom. So I'm wondering if you could talk about, you know, some of the recent decisions and also, you know, why exactly this, this approach might cause some frust- frustration for both, both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Yeah. When, uh, in the, in the original draft of the book, my that very opening line was, uh, this is a book that no one will like. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, it's not a great position to be in as an author because really everyone will find something to dislike about it, I think, but you know, it is what it is. I just, I just, uh, I should make clear, I'm not trying to even necessarily advocate the natural rights approach. I'm just trying to lay it out. This is what it means. I've done my work if I make clear what, why the founders believed we have natural rights, what their philosophical and theological arguments were, what the original meaning of the Constitution is, and then what a natural rights approach would look like. That's, you know, my, um, my aim is scholarly. After you do that, then you can have a real conversation about, you know, is the natural rights approach meritorious and it should be adopted. Okay. Your, your question, though, was about these recent cases, establishment clause cases. Uh, just a few months ago, the court uh, abandoned or announced that the Lemon Test has been abandoned and the endorsement test. I think those results are perfectly consistent with the natural rights approach. What the Supreme Court hasn't done for the establishment clause is articulate a real clear doctrine of what the establishment clause prohibits. Um, they say it prohibits coercion. But what coercion, what, what is un- unconstitutional coercion is not altogether clear. Justice Kennedy had a version of co- coercion that said uh, um, coerce kids to pray even if they just hear a prayer you know, at a public school graduation, whereas Justice Scalia had a very different notion of coercion. So how do you adjudicate these two notions of coercion is a question that has to be answered. There's even an, another question I would add. Why should we understand the Establishment Clause to prohibit coercion? Coercion seems to belong under the Free Exercise Clause. I mean, look at it this way. If the founders wanted to prohibit coercion, why didn't they just draft text that said, Congress shall not coerce religion? They said, Congress shall not establish religion. It might be that establishments are coercive, but it doesn't mean that coercion is the whole of an establishment. And no one on the court has really fully thought this through yet. 
I think Justice Gorsuch in particular is trying to think it through. Justice Thomas has had some very interesting things to say about federalism. But we need a better understanding of what constitutes an establishment of religion. And the court's not there yet. I have some things to say about that, but let me just say that the court's not there yet. Well, as we come to the close of the interview, a forward-looking question for you. What cases are on the docket for the next Supreme Court term that we should keep an eye on as relates to religious liberty? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm better at trying to predict the past than the future. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I've been uh, digesting all the recent court decisions. So I'm not sure what's in the pipeline in terms of particular cases. The, the big issue, there's two big issues. I can tell you what those are, what, what cases and when they'll come to the court. I'm not sure. The big issue for the free exercise clause is if Smith, is Smith going to be overturned? There's certainly three votes to overturn it, maybe five. So there'll be a case, and this is uh, whether the First Amendment provides exemptions or not. I think a natural rights approach would say it doesn't, but obviously other scholars disagree. For the Establishment Clause, the next big case, series of cases, will get at you know what exactly the Establishment Clause prohibits. What exactly is coercion? Why should we associate coercion with the Establishment Clause? Justice Scalia just said establishment means coercion. and didn't really offer much evidence for that. And I that's not fully persuasive, I think. That's somewhat problematic. Uh, and as I said, Justice Gorsuch is trying to think his way through it. I'll just say one other thing. I mean, I think one of the there's an interesting historical fact you're talking about history. There's only one state at the found, during the founding era that established a religion. And that's the state of South Carolina. No, I mean, no one seems to know this. The 1778 South Carolina Constitution established the Protestant Christian religion as the official established religion of the state. This was in the South Carolina State Constitution. So it would seem if we want to figure out what an establishment is, we should go to the 1778 South Carolina State Constitution, something that's never seriously been done by the Supreme Court or or most scholars. I'll I'll leave it to the reader to read the book to to figure out what we'd find if, if we did that. Great. Well, we'll wrap up there. Thanks so much for joining us today, Philip. If people want to read more of your work, where can they purchase your book and where can they follow you? Uh, well, the book should be available uh, at the end of August on Amazon. I don't know in good conscience that I can recommend Amazon, but that would be the easiest way to, to get it. Uh, you can go to the University of Chicago, uh, Chicago website. They pre- uh, published the book, the University of Chicago Press. You can find it there. But for better or worse, uh, the easiest way is probably Amazon. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, thanks to you all for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. ISI.